Well, this morning, we're going back to the book of Judges. We took a one-week break from it. We're back to the life of Samson. If you'll open your Bible to Judges chapter 14 and 15. The last time we were together in the book of Judges, we saw that his birth was announced to his mother by an angel, the angel of the Lord. And in that, there is many similarities between the birth of Jesus being announced to Mary and even others in the Old Testament. One fact about Samson that we need to understand is that of all of these judges, of all of the more notable judges like even Gideon, Samson gets more attention devoted to him than any of them, yet he seems to accomplish less than any of them. Now, there are some very memorable things that happen, some memorable things that happen in Samson's life. That was just your wake-up call right there. We know something concerning Samson and the lion and the honey out of the lion's carcass. We know something of the 300 foxes that Samson lets loose in the fields of the Philistines. We know something of Samson slaying a thousand men with only the jawbone of a donkey. We know something about Samson and Delilah and all of the details concerning that, his great strength. We know about Samson's end, how the Lord empowered him one last time to show forth the great feat of strength supplied him by the Lord. I called him the mysterious Samson. Okay, so mysterious. If we consider his birth announced by an angel and we consider his death, the way in which he died and the burial that he received, on both accounts, he's considered in sorts, as sorts of a hero. Unusual. But, though he was born and buried as a hero, on the other hand, as we get involved into the details of his life, we see him as sort of a bandit, a trickster, and as one who has referred to him, one who frivolously fritters away his extraordinary calling and his gifts. This is the way the scriptures depict Samson in chapters 14 15 and 16, and here I'm using the words of Daniel Block. He says, the picture the author of Judges paints of this man is downright ugly. Samson is disrespectful to his parents. We'll see that at the beginning of chapter 14. He's callous toward his calling as a Nazarite. He has no loyalty to his own people. He compromises his ethics. He is rude to his wife, flippant with his tongue, and seems to be only driven by his own lust, eroticism, and fleshly appetite. That's the man Samson. Honestly, the book of Judges does not paint Samson in the greatest light. But we have the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as we have referenced this verse time and time again, simply reads, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and who's the next name? Samson. 
And as we've already seen, even Jephthah is mentioned in Hebrews 11.32. If we go on with that chapter, the 33rd verse seemingly appears to be referencing Samson and perhaps David, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. One of the first things that we're going to see in chapter 14 of Judges is how Samson stops the mouth of a lion. Apparently, because of the position that the writer of Hebrews gives Samson, we aren't told the whole story of this man in Judges 14, 15, and even 16. But we need to be mindful that even in the book of Hebrews, the writer there is only commending his faith, not his works. That's what that 11th chapter is all about, right? It's not the works that are shown forth. It's the faith in Christ, the faith in God behind those works that are considered in Hebrews 11. There are things about Samson's life that we cannot morally or ethically approve of. But yet, there we find him in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's contrary to our expectation. If we're honest, we don't expect to see his name there. As we read these chapters, and we read of his heroism, but also of his great failures, we just quite honestly don't expect to see Samson embedded in the Faith Hall of Fame. But nonetheless, he's there. This brings out an important point that is immediately applicable to every one of us. None, zero, none of God's servants are perfect. And every single one prone to failure. The last word concerning Samson is his best word. May that also, by the grace of God, be true of us. Isn't that what the proverb says? Better is the end of a matter than its beginning. Better the end of Samson than the beginning of Samson. Let me remind you of something that we looked at last week, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago as we began to, to look at the life of Samson. Some amazing things are said about him. Not only is his birth announced by the angel of the Lord, and those things certainly did come to pass. But we're told concerning Samson, and I want, to, I want you to have this in your mind as I read you these verses. These are things that Samson didn't even seem to realize about himself. These are things that he did not bring to the forefront in any time of his life. These are not things that in the course of studying these three chapters that even his parents reminded him of. But these are things that the Lord would say about him nonetheless. The last two verses of the 13th chapter. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Interestingly, he has seemed to be named after a pagan sun god. But speaking of this child, the child grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. We read something very similar in the fourth verse of chapter 14. And it says here, That the Lord was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, 
And so he put this Philistine woman, apparently very beautiful, before Samson, and he took recognition of her. Also in the sixth verse of chapter 14, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson for the first time when he would take the life of a lion with his bare hands. Also in the 19th verse of this same chapter, again, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men. In chapter 15 and verse 14, the, Lord came, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson again so that he took just the jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand men. All of these verses reference some way upon which the Spirit of the Lord empowered and blessed Samson, enabling him to do something that he would otherwise not have been able to do. But yet in the face of that, Samson seems to be the poster child for the 17th chapter in the 6th verse, which tells us that in these days the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the way this book ends, also in chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and we could add to that or understand that in this way, even the judges were doing In very many cases, what was right in their own eyes. So I want to to cover these first two chapters, 14 and 15, just by looking at the more notable events in his life. And what led to them, the outcome of them, and what we might learn from them. So if you're in chapter 14, let's read a few verses here. Now Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman there of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Now we're told a little later in the next verse or two the response of his father and his mother. But I want you to remember with me what was revealed by the angel of the Lord to them in verse 5 of chapter 13 concerning this son. In verse 5 of chapter 13, we are told there that he will be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. So immediately we're met with some kind of confusion. If he is indeed to be the deliverer or the judge of Israel to deliver the people of God out of the hands of the Philistines, why then is he going to take a wife from among them? That seems to be counterintuitive. And the confusion is reflected in his mother and father's response. In verse 3, his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all of my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But none of this deters him. Samson says to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. There's a bit of nuance here that doesn't come across to us 
in our English versions, basically what Samson is saying, she is right in my eyes. What two verses have we referenced already? 17 verse 6, 21 verse 25, the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Here, by Samson's own admission, as he sees nothing but the external of this Philistine woman, she's right in my eyes. She's pleasant to look upon. And then perhaps the summary verse for the entirety of Samson's story in Judges is verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. Now parents, here's hope. Here's a little bit of hope infused in Samson's life. We can most likely relate to Samson coming with news to his parents that necessarily they did not want to hear. And I'm not saying this is always the case. This is not a blanket that we can throw over everything that confuses us. But there is a little bit of hope embedded in these words that what we are hearing just may be of the Lord. His parents did not know that the Lord was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. And that's my understanding of this verse. Some would understand it as saying that Samson was taking occasion to move against the Philistines. But in my understanding, that just doesn't fit the context at all. Samson, by his own admission, has already said, I just want her because she's beautiful. So it's the Lord seeking an occasion to move against them. The Lord seeking an occasion to deliver his people one more time, as we've seen played out time after time after time again. The people sin against God. He brings someone to punish their sin, to chastise them for their sin. They cry out, though this is absent, there's no cry here. Yet the Lord, in grace and mercy, delivers them anyway. The Lord seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Don't miss this fact, this detail, and what I will call this typology here. See here in being portrayed in the lives of the people of God, and the people who had dominion over them, a kingdom of dominion of which the people of God, had God not chosen to intervene, had no ability to remedy the situation at all. I can say that because if you move over to chapter 15 and verse 11, the people of God seem to be content to be under Philistine rule, They seem to be content to be under the tyranny of the Philistines. They come to Samson and ask him in chapter 15 and verse 11, Do you not know the Philistines rule over us? And the context of that question is, why are you disturbing them? Leave them alone. They are ruling over us, and at this point in time, they are causing us no great harm. Perhaps this is indicative of how at home people can seemingly become under the tyranny of sin. When you look at the world around you, and you see everything that is wrong and is increasingly going more wrong, it's a reflection of the contentment 
of a people that have sin reigning over them. And they don't want that reign to be disturbed. Just like the people of God here, Samson, don't go and disturb the Philistines. We are content with their rule. But we can't remember, or we can remember, that this is the Lord's doing. He was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. And we can't miss the providence, the sovereignty of God here. It was the Lord that had raised up the Philistines. Now it is the Lord, beginning with Samson, who is going to put them down. They will not fully be put down by Samson. David will arise on the scene later. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But for now, this is the beginning of the Philistines being put down. And, and you children, I want you to notice something. There, is, there are things embedded in the lives of Samson that should grab your attention. I want you to notice here in verses 5 and 6 and 7, as Samson is going down to Timnah with his father and mother, and he came to the vineyards, to his surprise, and we might add there, to his great surprise, a young lion came roaring out against him. And this is the first mentioning in the account of Samson that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And what does the Spirit of the Lord here enable him to do? Kill a lion with his bare hands. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. Though he had nothing in his hand. But here is part of the mystery of Samson. We're not going to read all of these verses in chapter 14, but if you were to take the time and mark out how often it says he did not tell his father or his mother, or his father and his mother did not tell him, there is a great secrecy about his affairs and relating them to both his father and mother and to all of the people around him. He did not tell them what he had done. But let me ask you another question. To this point in Samson's life, and we're very early in his story, I grant that, but to this point in his life, what had he done to deserve the Spirit of the Lord coming mightily upon him and enabling him to deal with the lion that jumped out in surprise? What had he done? Nothing. It would have made sense for the young lion to tear Samson apart and then go on and tear his mother and father apart. But owing to the providence and grace of God alone, that doesn't happen. Samson was marked out for this type of ministry before he was even born. Even as a child, we read the closing verses of the 13th chapter, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him as a boy. And unbeknownst to him, this is the surprise of grace. Samson was going to Timnah to get a wife. And on the way, the Lord moves upon him coming up on him mightily and empowering him. This is the first This is the first snapshot of what the Lord would do 
through the life of Samson. He is unique in the scriptures as one incredibly, supernaturally, physically empowered of the Lord to do great feats that just otherwise would not make sense. So here he is a recipient, not just of a surprise attack, but of the surprise grace of God. And very often, this is the way God makes his grace known. We're not searching for it. We're completely occupied with our own adventure. We are completely occupied with doing what is right in our own eyes. And then surprise, surprise, the grace of God comes upon you mightily. That may even be your salvation testimony, as it was Saul of Tarsus. But yeah, we're given some some details here about this encounter with the lion. After in verse 7, he goes down and talks with the woman, and she pleaded with Sam, and she pleased Samson well. Afterwards, some time, he returned to get her. He turned aside, and he saw the carcass of the lion. But here's something amazing is happening. There's a swarm of bees. There's honey in the lion's decaying carcass. And so Samson took some of it in his hands and went along eating it, and he even gave some to his mother and father. But here again, the secrecy and mystery of Samson, he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion, nor did he tell them that he had killed this lion with his own hands. As a result of the Spirit of God mightily coming upon him. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there. The word for feast here in the original, this was a, what some commentators have called nothing more than a drinking party. Samson is doing nothing so, nerd, so noteworthy here other than acting according to his own fleshly appetite. And even the description here is given in the 10th verse, for so young men used to do. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now before we go any further, we'll just recognize that these 30 men are in a very unfortunate place. And Samson, for no reason, this, this reveals the heart of Samson He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. He gives them a riddle. And the riddle is this. And he says to them, if you can explain this riddle or give me a proper answer, I will then give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. So they had a lot to gain from this, especially in their day. They couldn't just run down to the local store and get anything like this, right? So there is a lot on the table for them. And here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the strong came something sweet. Really, it's an impossible riddle to solve without the information given prior. And these 30 young men contemplate and consider this riddle for three days. They really want the 30 changes of clothes and the 30 linen garments and They contemplated for three days, but yet in the end, they could not explain the riddle. 
So they go to Samson's wife. And to paraphrase a bit, they entice Samson's wife to find out the answer to this riddle from Samson. And this is the first time that we see one of Samson's wives becoming his downfall. She pressed him so much that he finally gave in and revealed the riddle. So the men of the city came to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, and they gave him an answer to his riddle in these words, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And Samson immediately realizes that they had gone to his wife, found out the answer to the riddle, and he says, If you had not plowed with my heifer, then you would not have solved my riddle. And for the second time in verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle so his anger was aroused and he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Scandalous. Deceitful. Let me remind you here, and I'll remind you again later, this is the action or the acts of a man who is called out for his great faith. So what happens after this? His wife is given to his friend, his best man, But that is unbeknownst to him. He returns to his father's house, and now he comes back to get his wife. We're in the beginning of chapter 15. Samson visited his wife with a young goat. This was a present or an offering. Now, men, don't follow Samson's example here. Our wives are not going to be too impressed with young goats. But he says to her father, let my wife Go, let me go into my wife, to her room. The father would not permit it. Because he had said, I've already given her away to someone else. I thought you were gone forever, but here her sister, her younger sister is beautiful. Take her instead. And Samson replies in the third verse that he will be just this time and blameless regarding the Philistines, and this is the second event in his life, the 300 foxes. Samson went and caught 300 foxes. That in itself is an incredible feat, is it not? That's not even mentioned here. That's just taken for granted, but the fact that he could go out and catch not one, two, or three, but 300 of these elusive creatures, and he took torches turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between their tails, and then he sent them out through the vineyards and the standing grain of the Philistines. And it all burns. This time they are the ones who are upset. They come to the people of Judah, and they say, who did this? They revealed that it was Samson. They said, bring him to us. We will kill him. And in the meantime... They take his wife and her father, and in the sixth verse, 
they burn her and her father with fire. And this gives occasion for Samson to find the jawbone of a donkey, take it up, and kill a thousand of them. This is the third great feat in the life of Samson. He kills the lion with his bare hands. He catches 300 foxes. Sends them throughout the country, burning the crops. And now he is taking up the jawbone of a donkey. But I want to read verse 14 for the context of that event. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. This is the third or fourth times now that we have seen this. The, the, the people of Judah had bound him with ropes. He breaks loose from the ropes. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men. Physically speaking, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, he was a force not to be reckoned with. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. When he was finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he called the place Ramath-Lehi. Then let's finish with chapter 15 before we begin to look at some applications or lessons we can learn from the life of Samson thus far. God continues to be increasingly merciful to this man. After he killed these thousand men, he was thirsty. And in verse 18, he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. So again, God worked on his behalf by splitting the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. He judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Next week, Lord willing, we will consider chapter 16, Samson and Delilah. But I wanted to go a little further here and try to rectify in our minds how this man could end up in Hebrews 11. The only answer can be given in one word, and that word we know is grace. But I also want to give you the words of Matthew Henry here, commenting on this verse, these verses. Listen carefully to what he says. True faith is acknowledged and accepted even when mingled with many failings. Isn't that the story of your life? The story of mine? True faith is acknowledged and accepted even when mingled with many failings. And we might add to his words there, many great failings. 
Samson, though incredibly physically strong, was at the same time incredibly spiritually weak. Some of you have heard these words from Vodibacum before. He says of Samson, David and Solomon. David being the most godly, Solomon being the most wise, and Samson being the strongest of all men. What do all these men have in common? All of these men have in common that they fell into the grievous sin of immorality and adultery before God. So being exceedingly godly, wise, and physically strong, perhaps, but even spiritually strong, does not exempt us from the admonition of 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Surely we can learn that from Samson. We were told back in the fourth verse of chapter 14 that the Lord would begin with Samson to subdue or put down the Philistines. That's something that would only be finished later as David would come upon the scene and fight initially with Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. But I don't want us to miss the typology here with Samson. We've said with every judge, we want to deal honestly with his life. We want to see the details of what Scripture would give us concerning his life, but we want to also see their weaknesses. And those weaknesses make us yearn for the greater judge. Those weaknesses make us long for the true, the one, the only judge who judges righteously. And that being the Lord Jesus Christ. The typology here, I want you to not miss. The Philistines are representative in many cases of the tyranny of sin upon the people of God. All of these judges come, and for a time, and in their own way, and even under the help of the Lord, break that tyranny for a time, but it always returns. That's the cycle. It always comes back to rest where it began. And this issue is the same with Samson. And in essence, Samson nor any of these judges could look at all of these works, deliver the people of God from them, and then say, finally, ultimately, and fully, it's finished. The work of deliverance is now over. The reason they could not do that is because they were merely human instruments in the hand of God. Their deliverance was temporary. Their deliverance very often did not even last throughout the lifetimes of the people of God. Sometimes the cycle was very short, but even if it was a more lengthy period, nevertheless, it always came back home to roost. So as we're considering how Samson is a type of Christ, take heart. You and I are indeed under the tyranny of sin. But its power can and has been broken. And once broken by Christ, it will never come back home 
and rest upon you again. What Samson could not say, Christ said once and for all. It's finished. It's done. It is only possible to turn from idols to God through the work of Jesus Christ. We can do that in reverse in our own strength. We can turn from God to idols, but never the reverse. If God doesn't help, if He doesn't dispense grace, if He doesn't intervene, born in sin, we'll die in sin. If the Spirit of the Lord does not come mightily upon us, as it did with Samson, and reveal His own Son to us, then we will never break free from the tyranny of sin. It will always return. I want to remind you of a verse out of Hebrews chapter 1. It's the third verse, but I want to read really the first four so that we don't rip it right out of its context. Verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. And listen to the third verse concerning the ministry of Christ. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ did what a multitude of judges could never do. Christ did what all of the great characters of the Old Testament and even the New compiled together could never do, and he did it alone. He did it by himself. And the scriptures are specific. He by himself purged our sins. All alone. That's the glory of the greater judge. That's the glory of Christ as compared to Samson, to Gideon, to Jephthah, to Barak, and all of those lesser known judges that we've considered so far. Let me remind you of what I've already told you concerning what Matthew Henry said, and this is the only way to answer the question. How does this Lying trickster end up in Hebrews 11. His faith was acknowledged and accepted even when mingled with many failings. That's the beauty of the grace of God when He comes to you And you in faith believe the message of the gospel. The righteousness of Christ is given to you. The the theological term there is it's imputed. It's given. And once it is really and truly given, the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. Be careful. That doesn't give you license to go out and sin. That doesn't give you 
grounds for living a licentious lifestyle? That was the question of Paul in the book of Romans. What shall we say to these things? Can we just go out and sin, 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 so that God can forgive, 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 and in that forgiving be glorified? How does he answer that question? God forbid. May it never be. Because when the grace of God comes and there is an imputation of righteousness, the righteous character of Christ into your heart and life, you will be forever changed. You'll continue to struggle with sin because it remains in you. But the sap of its power has been cut. You are no longer a slave or under its tyranny. And all glory to God, we are no longer under its penalty either. We no longer have to give an account for our sins because Christ has made account for them. And so throughout this study of judges, every time we see even some of the more notable and what we would call great judges, in the end, all we can see is their weakness and their failure and the fact that they are men. And they cannot ultimately or finally deliver. But praise be to God. There is a deliverer. There is a redeemer. There is one who completely by himself overcame sin. And we sit here this morning as those who by faith have reaped all the benefits of his obedience have reaped all the benefits of his life lived in obedience to his own law. All praise to him. Where would you be without Christ? Can I answer that question for you? If you won't answer it honestly for yourself, let me answer it for you. Where would you be without Christ? You would be lost. You would be dead in sin. You would be bound for destruction, and it would find you in the end. Where are you now with Christ? You've been given new life. Your heart of stone has been replaced by a heart of flesh. You can now, with help of the Spirit, discern the things of God. You can live in obedience to His commands and to His word and bear fruit unto His own glory. Please see the, the great disparity between those two lives. Don't let the busyness of this life dull your senses to these two biblical realities. We can boil it down to this. Either we are resting and trusting in Christ... And thereby have become the people of God for whom he acts. Or we are in some way, form, or another trying to justify ourselves through works. The scriptures are very clear. An ungodly man or woman can do nothing, zero, to justify themselves in the sight of a holy God. 
So the invitation, come to Christ. See him as the greater judge, the one true delivering judge. He is full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He will not turn you away. May he draw you to himself today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account of Samson. And as notable as many of his acts were, and how, how easily they stick in our minds, help us to see him for who he is. He's a man who failed often. A man who fell often. But yet we find him immortalized in a great chapter in our Bible as being a great man of faith. Only you, a gracious God, could see him as such. Only you could see this man clothed in your own righteousness and declare him to be righteous. And help us to see ourselves as Samson's. We may at times be able to do great works for you, but those works will in the end fail if they're not done in Christ and by faith. Father, I pray that you would do your work in the hearts of each man, woman, boy, and girl here. Do it in such a way that you will receive all the praise, the honor, and glory for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.